How is everybody? Um, glad you guys are watching again this week. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone's allergies aren't, aren't getting too much to them. I know mine are. Uh, my eyeballs keep swelling up and um, lots of allergies going on. So I also wanted to say you're welcome for all of you who watched last weekend. I'm sure you're paying a lot closer attention to what games your children are downloading on their iPads. So uh, you're welcome for that. If you're new or um, if you haven't tuned in for a while or maybe you have been, but uh, in the last week or so have kind of forgotten where we are in our series with Matthew, wanted to catch you up a little bit. We are doing the entire book of Matthew. This is what we do at this church. We don't really do um, short series or anything like that or, or, or just kind of uh, topical lessons. Um, we go through whole books of the Bible and we've been working through what I think is my favorite book of the Bible the book of Matthew, and I can make an argument that it's probably the most important book of the Bible, in my opinion. But where we are at is last week, we were in the first half of chapter eight. And if you haven't been with us, chapters five through seven is Jesus kind of beginning his ministry, kind of. Um, he goes up on a hillside. He's teaching his disciples. Um, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most uh, uh, most famous and, and some of the most important chapters of the entire Bible, chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew. Jesus started with a small crowd, his disciples, and then it grew into this very, very large crowd, the Bible says, and then he goes off the mountain or the hillside where he is, and that's where we picked up in chapter eight, and we start to see Jesus get into kind of the gritty side of ministry, to where he's not just teaching on a hillside. He goes down, and the first person we encounter is a man with leprosy. We encounter a Roman soldier, a centurion who has a sick servant. Um, Jesus goes to Peter, one of the disciples, goes to his house and heals his mother-in-law. So we see Jesus kind of getting into the trenches, right? With the everyday people, the normal people. He's touching their lives. He's healing them doing a lot of ministry. And we talked about last week, we didn't get done with chapter eight. We got to verse 22, but we stopped at verse 23. And we, we concluded the lesson last week with this very interesting story that Jesus is about to get into a boat, cross the Sea of Galilee, which is in North Israel. And, and when he gets into that boat to get away from the crowds, there's only a limited amount of people that can go with him. And these are the most committed people. And so we find a couple of people come up to him at the end and they say, Jesus, we want to follow you. And he says interesting things. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but we may not have a place to sleep tonight. So, okay, you know, the first guy was kind of like, we don't really know what happened to the first guy, but you can imagine he's like, wow, that's, that's going to be a lot more difficult than what I thought it was going to be. And another man walks up to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you, but I got to take care of some family business. And Jesus's response was, let the dead bury their own dead. And what we get from the end of our lesson last week is, is that sometimes we can kind of stall, right? We say we want to follow Jesus. We say we want to be Christians. Or we say we want to pursue the answers, you know, the big questions and, and, and find the big answers to life. But we have a tendency to kind of stall a little bit, right? Once I get these other things taken care of, then I'll get to that. So we asked ourselves last week, are we stalling? This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to finish up chapter 8, and we're actually going to do a little bit of chapter 9, just a little section there. And we're going to ask ourselves this question. Do we live a life of praise? 
That, that doesn't mean do we drive around in our car, right, during this quarantine thing and listen to worship music. Do we live a life of praise? And I'm gonna define praise later because it may not be what you think it is. And then we're gonna ask ourselves, is that what we do? And if we don't praise God, what do we praise? Talk about that a little bit, okay? So if you're joining me today, uh, Saturday, Sunday, or maybe sometime uh, later in the week after it's recorded and put on YouTube and Facebook and our website and all that jazz, if you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're gonna start in chapter eight, verse 23 today, and we'll work a little bit into chapter nine as well. Um, if you have a smartphone, which you know I guess like everyone over the age of six now does, you can download the Experience Community app and all of that information is on there. All the notes will be on the website, so we have lots of ways to get all this information, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna jump into this lesson today. And um, again, I don't know if anyone else is feeling this. I cannot wait to actually have you guys in this room four times a week um, actually teaching people that are in the room. I am over this whole speaking to a camera thing. So just so you guys know, I miss you guys I can't wait to see you again, but this is where we're going to do it for a while, and that's okay, all right? So let me pray. Let's jump into the Word, and um, see where God takes us today, okay? Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. Lord, I want to tell you thank you, God, for everyone who's listening to this right now who has remained healthy and, and strong throughout this time. God, thank you, Lord, not just for our physical health, but God, for our mental health and spiritual health, Lord Jesus, and pray that you just continue to, to just protect us. God, we pray for our community. Pray for the leaders of our community, the churches in our community, the non-believers of our community, God. We pray for uh, our state. We pray for our governor, Lord. We pray for our country. We pray for our president. We pray for other countries, Lord, that are going through similar things that we are, God. Lord, keep your hand on us during these times, and Lord, bring us together, God, and, and, and uh, I just long for the day when we can worship together in person. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Keep your hand on me as I teach today. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, picking up. Jesus is about to get into the boat with his disciples, and we're going to see what happens. Okay, starting in verse 23. Matthew writes, as he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus just kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. So like I said a little bit earlier, the part that we ended on last week, not this week, but last week, was about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, right? So now we're gonna kind of see that following Jesus is not always easy. So the disciples that were committed, they hop on a boat, they're gonna cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you don't know much about this lake, I've never been on this lake, it'd be neat to go on it one day, it was kind of notorious, it was known for having very unpredictable and violent storms. Not only that, these guys were gonna travel the furthest distance they could on this lake. And of course, right, exactly what they might have feared was going to happen takes place. And this huge storm hits, 
Bible says it started to swamp the boat with waves. And the first reaction in a storm like this, if you're out in the middle of a sea or a lake or an ocean or whatever, your first response is to start getting buckets and getting that water out of the boat, right? Because you don't want the boat to sink. They're scrambling to keep this thing afloat. So these guys are shoveling water all over the side. And the whole time that they're doing this, what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. So it's interesting, and it's, it's kind of humorous when you read it here. Probably not so, so humorous if you were there on the boat. But Jesus was exhausted. The human side of Jesus was worn out. He had been working, if you will, right? Healing people, talking to the crowds. And you know that sometimes, especially if you're a more introverted person, talking to thousands and thousands of people, it just drains you. So he is worn out, and he's taking a nap. And so the disciples, though they loved him, we're probably kind of ticked off at him. They're scrambling to stay alive and Jesus is sleeping over here, right? And so they, they run up to Jesus, they wake him up and they say, Lord, save us, we're gonna die. What are you doing? Now what's ironic about that and the reason why Jesus kind of rebukes them here in a second is these men had just seen a man with leprosy be healed. They had seen a Roman centurion servant be healed Peter, one of the disciples, saw his mother-in-law be healed. So these men had witnessed Jesus's power. So was it, was it that they believed that, that he had power, but not that much power? He can heal the sick, but, but he can't control the elements, right? He can't control nature. He's not that powerful, is he? So their cry of Lord save us was more of a cry of desperation than it was a cry of faith in Jesus's abilities. And that kind of brings us to our first kind of personal question, right? We ask these throughout the lesson. And the first personal question is this, do we tend to cry out to God more out of fear and desperation than actually crying out to God because we believe that he can fix the situation? We have to be honest, don't we? A lot of the times we cry out in fear, but we don't cry out saying, God, regardless of what happens, we know that you can fix it. So we have to be honest with ourselves. How do we cry out to God? So what's interesting about this is before Jesus rebukes the storm, Jesus rebukes his disciples. He says, what are you guys afraid of? Imagine that. Imagine standing on this ship. The storm is raging around you. The, the, the boat is filling up with water. And Jesus calmly looks at his disciples and he says, what are you guys afraid of? You of little faith, right? And so he rebukes them first, uses this very teachable moment, right? A lot of object lessons flying around this boat. And he uses it as an opportunity to teach them a lesson. This is so important. Listen, the lesson is this, is in the middle of the storm, God's still in control, right? In the middle of all this is going on, do we have faith that Jesus knows what he's doing? See, in the life of a Christian, Jesus should already have a good reputation in our lives, which means we should already think the best of Jesus. We should know that Jesus wants what's best for us. We should know that Jesus is in control. We should know that Jesus is our savior. But sometimes, and look at how pertinent this is to right now, Sometimes Jesus has to let the storm stir a little bit to get our attention, doesn't he? I know he's done that in my life. I don't know if he's done it in your life. I think he's doing it to a lot of our lives right now. Sometimes the storm has to stir a little bit for us to finally look up and say, okay, you got my attention, Jesus. So when Jesus rebuked the storm after he rebuked his disciples, 
It proved that Jesus was sovereign over nature. He was the sovereign God over the natural things. And of course, this amazed all the people who were on the boat. Now, we need to be careful with natural disasters. We have a tendency sometimes to to give God, this sounds weird, almost too much credit for some of these things. You know, whenever there's an earthquake in California, we're like, it's God taking judgment on those people. Or we just built a large group of people in cities on a fault line, right? And sometimes earthquakes just happen. We say, well, there was a tsunami in this island out in the middle of the, the Pacific, and that's God's judgment. No, I mean, it's an island in the middle of a raging ocean. And, and sometimes these things just happen. We also need to know that after the fall of man, the Bible says that the world groans, right? Because the world was even affected by the fall of sin coming into the world. So we have to be careful with natural disasters, right? Every time that a storm comes, it's not because God's angry. It's because we live in a world where these things just kind of happen. So we have to be careful with those things, right? Next part. So when they had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. They said, if you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, Jesus told them. So when they had come out, they entered into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who attended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, this is interesting. So we have seen Jesus deal with sickness and disease, nature, and now we're gonna see Jesus deal with the supernatural. So when they docked their boat, right, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, two demon-possessed men, it says, came out of tombs, right, to come meet them. Now, you Walking Dead fans, don't get too excited. They're not zombies. It's not anything weird going on here. What would typically happen is this fugitives and people who were homeless or people who were outcasts would hide out in these abandoned tombs in different areas, Okay. So this area was called the Decapolis, which was a a group of cities that was mostly non-Jews. They were Gentiles. So we understand now that it wasn't zombies, that it was people hiding out in these tombs that came out, these demon-possessed men. We also hear about this herd of pigs. The reason why there could be pig herders in this area is because they were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. Jews Jews didn't have, they, they didn't raise pigs, okay? So three things would have really bothered Jewish people at this time. If they would have read what I just read to you, there would have been three things that they would have been like, we don't like that. The first one is, is that Jesus purposefully went into a heavily Gentile area. They wouldn't have done that. They didn't like the Gentiles. The second thing is, is that Jesus purposefully went into a cemetery. 
Now, there was a lot of mysticism during this time. There was a lot of superstition during this time. And a lot of the Jewish people thought there were evil spirits in cemeteries, right? And I guess technically there were at least two in this cemetery and these men. But they thought there were evil spirits. Spirits. They also thought that if you were around dead bodies, it made you religiously unclean. So that would have bothered the Jewish people. The third thing that would have bothered them is that Jesus intentionally engaged two demonically possessed individuals. So again, people in this time had a much higher respect and sensitivity to supernatural things, okay? So this story would have been very uncomfortable for people in that time. So these two demonically possessed men, they come towards Jesus and they recognize him. Not only did these two demons in these men, the men didn't recognize Jesus, the demons in the men recognized Jesus. Not only did they recognize Jesus, they understood that a time was going to come when they were going to be cast into eternal torment. So that's kind of interesting. So they understood their destiny, if you will, their fate. So what do we learn from this? We learn we learn that simply knowing who Jesus is does not save us. These demons knew who Jesus was. They even knew what the outcome of eternity was going to be, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. This is so important. So a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, I'm saved, I know who Jesus is. It's not knowing who he is, it's living like we know who he is. It's having a relationship with him. It's following him that saves us, not simply knowing that Jesus is the Savior. The book of James says the devils in hell know who Jesus is. They even know what their eternity is going to look like. But if you don't have a relationship with him, we cannot be saved. We have to have a relationship. So this is where the story gets very, very interesting, very intriguing. The demonically possessed men, the demons in them, knew that Jesus was there. They knew who Jesus was. And they, they were afraid, and they said, listen, Jesus, if you're going to cast us out, right, if you're going to deal with us, send us into that herd of pigs off in the distance. Let us go hang out in those pigs. Now, what makes the story interesting is Jesus goes, okay, go. Go into the pigs. Now, it's interesting because Jesus had the power to cast them back into hell, but instead he grants their wish, which is very, very interesting. So the demons go into the pigs, and it says the pigs basically go insane. They run off a cliff into the sea, and they drown themselves, and they die, right? Very graphic, probably disturbing thing to watch this whole thing take place. And so what's the point of that? Does God hate pigs, or, or what, what, is that, what is this? What, why this kind of insane, crazy, chaotic, disturbing scene that takes place? Well, some people believe that Jesus allowing the demons to go into the pigs that, that eventually killed themselves was a physical display of what demons want to do to us. See, the ultimate goal of the devil is to destroy you. The ultimate goal of the devil is to drive you mad, to destroy your mind, to destroy your relationships, to destroy your body, and to destroy your soul. The Bible even says that, right? He came to steal, kill, destroy. That's what the devil wants to do. So these demons going into these pigs, and, and everyone's seen this example of what the outcome of sin will be. The outcome of hanging out with evil is going to be death. It's going to be destruction. 
And in our modern time, all we have to do is look around and look at the fruit of evil lifestyles. Look at the outcome. Look at the results of people that don't follow Jesus and follow whatever they want to do. It is destruction. It is chaos. It is divorce and madness and self-harm. It is destruction. So all we have to do is look. We have physical examples around us all the time of what a life of evil ends up doing to us. So we have to ask, how do we respond? So it's interesting. It says that the men that tended the pigs kind of freaked out, right? I mean, and wouldn't we all? So they're sitting there tending the pigs. A bunch of demons go into their pigs. Their pigs run off into the sea and kill themselves. And it said they took off, right? They fled, went back to the town. And they were like, hey, dude showed up, put a bunch of demons in our pigs. They all killed themselves. That's pretty nuts. And it says they went and everyone who heard what the men had to say, it says the whole town came back to Jesus and they said, hey, you gotta go. Why? That is very interesting. So Jesus showed up and he delivered two men. And it said these demonically possessed men were so dangerous that no one would even like walk their direction. And this guy comes and he, he fixes them, right? He delivers them. You would think that everyone would be happy about that. Now, some theologians and commentaries think that they wanted Jesus gone because they feared someone that would have that kind of power. This guy shows up out of nowhere, delivers people of demons. That kind of, that, that's a little too much power for us. Listen, we don't want to submit to that much authority. Go away. Another reason why people think Jesus wanted to leave, or they wanted Jesus to leave, was that the pigs were the source of the livelihood of the town. The people depended on this. They, the, the, a big driver of their economy was herding these pigs, right? And so what happens is this. When Jesus comes into town, look at the metaphor here. When Jesus rolls into our lives, right? Into our towns, right? Into, the, in, 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 into every corner of our lives. He wants to be engaged in everything. He wants to be engaged in our marriages. He wants to be engaged in our finances. He wants to be engaged and have authority over every part of our lives. Jesus wants to be active everywhere in our lives. And this is why we reject him, many of us. What happens is that Jesus comes in, even if we find ourselves delivered of things, we don't want to submit to that much authority. When Jesus comes in, we notice that how we spend our money and how we treat people looks different, and we don't want to compromise our livelihood or compromise the way we want to do things, so we reject Jesus, even though he is here to set people free. And this is exactly what these people did. Fascinating. Last part. It says, so he got back into the boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. Just then, some men brought him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he is blaspheming. It says, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher and go home. So he got up, he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Okay. So they get back in the boat, right? They cross back over to an area called Capernaum, right? And that that was kind of Jesus's base, if you will, for his operations. So after leaving the region of the Gadarenes, they cross back over the lake. And when they arrive there, right when they get off the boat, right? Some men bring a guy who's on a stretcher. He's a paralytic, he's paralyzed. They bring him up there, they lay him down. Now notice this was a team effort. Guys, there are so many small things that if we just run through it real quick, we're gonna miss it. Notice that these men had to help their friend to get close to Jesus. Look at that. That means that this is a team effort. That's why the church is important. That's why small groups are important. Also notice that this guy is gonna get healed and it wasn't just because of his faith. It says, Matthew writes, that Jesus noticed their faith. He noticed the faith of the group, the friends. So friends bring friends to Jesus. Friends have faith that Jesus can change their life. It's a collective thing. Our faith or our lack of faith impacts other people. Look at that. That is so important. And so instead of healing the obvious health issue, right? This guy's on a stretcher, right? Very obvious what's wrong with this guy. Instead of going, what is on, going to what is on the surface, Jesus goes deeper and he heals the man's soul. He walks up to this paralytic and everyone's expecting this guy to pop up and walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your soul is healed. And when the religious leaders saw this, the scribes, teachers of the law, right? These are the smartest people of the smartest people. The religious leaders saw this and they thought, they didn't say, they thought, this is blasphemy. This is offending God. So healing bodies was one thing. Jesus had done that. But healing souls, only God could do that. Which brings us to a big point. Jesus was claiming to be God. This was his claim of deity. And so here's the thing. If the miracles, if the signs, the authority, the teaching that Jesus was the Savior, if those things were non-existent, the religious leaders would have had every right to say, no, he's wrong. He is blasphemous. They would have had every right. But the scribes were the, were the PhD level, if you will, of the Bible. These men should have known the Bible better than anyone, which means that all the things that Jesus was doing were all prophecies that were being fulfilled from the Bible. And they should have recognized this, but they didn't. And we come to a problem that has existed ever since religion has existed. The problem was that the leaders had gotten so off track to the mission of the word of God, to the mission of God himself, that the, listen, gosh, this is so good, that the religious people couldn't even see God right in front of their faces. God was right there doing what God does in flesh and blood right in front of them but the religious people had gotten so off track from the word. They had gotten so off track from the mission of God that they couldn't even recognize God when he was standing right in front of them. How many religious leaders do that today? 
How many Christians do that today? That if Jesus were to walk into most churches, we'd be afraid to talk to him, right? He'd kind of freak us out a little bit. That if God doing things around us, the Bible, right? That we have gotten so off track that we don't even recognize God moving around us when it's blatant and right in front of our faces. And that's what was happening in this situation. They didn't recognize him. So it said that Jesus perceived their thoughts, right? So he knew what they were thinking. And the scribes, they didn't say anything out loud, but Jesus knew their hearts, right? He knew their minds, and he knew that they questioned who he was. Guys, this may be one of the most important things uh, that I'm going to say, and, and I think it's very, very interesting. It's in blue, right? So if that's up on your screen right now, it says this. Jesus understood this. Wrong thoughts become wrong attitudes that result in wrong actions, what that means is that sin is birthed in our minds. That's why God has to get a hold of that in our minds. That if we do not get control of our thoughts, our thoughts will turn into attitudes and our attitudes will turn into actions. That's why the Bible says that we are to capture our thoughts, that we're to purposefully think on good things, the Bible says. Because if we don't get a hold of what's in our mind, it's going to bleed into our heart, and what comes into our heart will eventually come out in the form of an action. Jesus knew that, so he addressed their thoughts, right? He addressed their minds and their hearts. So Jesus knew that the scribes' hearts had become hardened to the truth. But just to prove his power to them, he looks at the paralytic and he says, get up. You're healed, right? Not just your soul, your body as well. But what we learn is this. The first thing that Jesus wants to heal is our soul. The second thing that Jesus wants to heal is our body. But we're not promised that Jesus is going to heal our body in this life. In fact, we are promised that all of us are gonna die. So everyone watching this right now, we're all gonna die one day. We may be in our younger years and we may live to be 112 years old. But all of us, one day, this body is going to shut down. And Jesus doesn't promise us anything otherwise. But he promises us that if, if, if we will let him heal our souls, that we will live for eternity with him. But we're only, we're only promised soul healing in this life, not physical healing in this life. So the awestruck crowd, they saw this, right? They saw the forgiveness of sins. They saw the man get up and be healed physically as well. And what did they do? They gave glory to God. Now, all throughout the Bible, the reason why Jesus did miracles wasn't just to heal people. It was to bring glory to God and in the hopes that people would have a relationship with Jesus, that they would have a relationship with God the Father, that they would see the things that he had done, right? And that they wouldn't follow him just so their bodies could be fixed. They would follow him because their souls and their eternities and that reconciliation with God the Father, that those things could take place. So here's what's interesting. Jesus has done the miraculous to all of us that call ourselves Christians. He has healed our souls, right? Some of you, he has healed your marriages. Some of you, he has healed physically. He's healed me physically. Some of you have been healed mentally. You've been healed all kinds of different ways. We have had the miraculous happen to us. But you know what happens over time is we kind of lose that awestruck, don't we? We lose that wonder. We lose that over time. And we stop sharing our story with others. We stop telling people about it. We, we even stop thinking about it ourselves. 
And that's a problem. So let's go back and recap a little bit. We're going to go over kind of every major part uh, that we covered a little bit today. The first one is this. We talked about that Jesus is the God of the natural, right? Of nature. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the sovereign God over the elements, right? Natural things. Do we understand, though, even though God is sovereign over all those things, we have to to balance that. We also have to understand that we live in a living, breathing, the Bible says groaning world, right? I think it says that in the book of Romans. So we have to understand that every time it rains, it isn't because God doesn't love us. Every time a natural disaster happens doesn't mean that God's trying to wipe out a certain group of people. I know that there are instances of that in the Bible, but that's not what that always means. We live in a world that is forever changed until he creates a new heaven and a new earth because of sin that humanity has brought in. But let me ask this. Do we trust the sovereign God in times like this? When we're dealing with viruses, when we're dealing with floodings, when we're dealing with tornadoes, do we trust it? Do we stand back in those times, even though it is confusing and say, God, you're the one that can calm the skies. You're the one that can calm the seas. You're the one that has your hand on all things biological. Do we trust God in these times? Interesting question right now, isn't it? Do we trust not just God with the natural? Do we trust God with the supernatural? Listen, I'm not trying to get weird on you guys. Do you believe, as the Bible says, that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against forces of darkness, that we fight a spiritual battle and that hell is literally coming after you? Corey, that sounds really charismatic and weird. It's just biblical. The demons are coming after your marriage. They're coming after your soul. They're coming after your children. They're coming after your livelihood. They're coming after every single part of you. The devil wants to destroy you. Steal, kill, destroy. Steal, kill, destroy. That is his intent. Do we understand that? Do we understand the blue part of this? Do we understand that if we are not careful, we can open ourselves up to those things? Listen, it matters what you watch on your television. It matters. And listen, I'm not trying to tell you to be like, you know, I don't think everyone just has to watch pure flicks and listen to, you know, Christian music all the time. I don't do those things. But we are very careful not to let things that are demonic into our home, not to let things that are are breaking Ten Commandments and overtly sexual and things like that. We don't let those things into our home because Jesus, Jesus even says, what comes in through the eye contaminates the entire body. It matters what you watch. It matters what you listen to because we open ourselves up to evil if we're not careful. And so let me ask you this though. Do we also believe that if we are full of God's spirit, that we have the authority, because as we go on through the gospels and into the book of Acts, God gives the authority to his followers to cast out demons in his name. That doesn't mean there's anything special about us. But if we have God's spirit in us and there is evil around us, we can say in the name of Jesus Christ, you have to go, but we have to be full of God's spirit. If we're not full of God's spirit and we try to do that, the Bible says we're going to be in deep trouble, right? It talks about that. But if you have God's spirit in you, if you have a relationship with Jesus, Ephesians 1.13 says, if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, if all hell comes against you, all you have to say is in the name of Jesus Christ. And those things have to go. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
So we trust the God of the natural. We trust the God of the supernatural. Do we trust the God of eternity? Which means this. Do we long more for the things of God than we long for the things of this earth? Do we long more for eternity than we long for the temporal? Well, yes, of course I do. Well, then let me ask you, what treasures are you storing up now? What things are you doing for a greater economy than ours, right? Nothing wrong with you having a savings account. Nothing wrong with you having Roth IRAs and a 401 or a 403. Nothing wrong with any of those things, guys. That's being smart. But what are you laying up for the next life? What treasures are you laying up and storing up for eternity? And what do you long for the most? Do we trust that no matter how things shake down in this life, if we give our life to Jesus now, our eternity is secure? Do you really, really believe that? In the last month, man, I've seen a lot of people that really claim to believe in a sovereign God, and they have absolutely lost their minds. And it makes me sit back and go, I don't know if you believe in a sovereign God as much as you say you do. Do we believe that if everyone got sick and if we all died, right? That as long as our life was given to Jesus Christ, that our eternity is secure. Do we believe that? Do we live like that? I'm not saying we live carelessly or foolishly, but we're not to live in paralyzing fear. It's not the way God has created us to be. Do we have our eyes set? Do we trust the God of eternity, right? Not just now but eternity. We talked about praise, and I said that was going to be kind of the focus of this whole thing at the end. Let me ask you this. It says at the very end of the part that we covered in in chapter 9 that these people saw the works of Jesus and they praised him. To praise, by definition, means to make something known, to make something visible. It's not singing a song. That's worship. When we do that, that's what Kyle does, and there's nothing wrong with that. Worship's a, a good thing. It's a biblical thing. Praising is a little bit different than worshiping. It's not popping on your favorite CD. I don't know if people have CDs anymore, but whatever, turning into Spotify and listening to your favorite worship thing, that's worship. Praising is making something that you, you follow known or visible. So do we make Jesus visible? <laughs> do we make Jesus known in the way we talk, in the way we act, in the way we think, in the way we communicate? Do we make Jesus, do we praise Jesus? Yeah, Corey, I listen to work. No, 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 you worship. Do you praise him? Do you make him known in everything you do? Do we, do we strive and do our best to emulate the one we claim to follow? Do we do that? And if we don't praise him, if we're being honest, right? And some of us say, man, I might worship him sometimes and I might read my Bible, but I don't know if I praise him. I don't know if I, if I make him known and visible to the world around me. If we don't praise him, what do we praise? What do we make known, right? Our politics, our beliefs on government, our beliefs on economics, our favorite musicians and movies, we tend to praise those things pretty darn well, right? We make everyone know how much we're into this or that or this person or that woman or... What do we praise? What captures our attention? What drives the way we function and how we act? What do we praise? And so two questions at the end here. Let me ask you this. If you're you're watching this right now and you claim to be a Christian, Christian, I follow Jesus Christ, a Christian. 
Are you still in awe of God? Listen, I, I, I know there's no one in this room and I'm not trying to be like a weird televangelist right now, but, but I'm speaking to someone. Are you still awestruck by God? Does it still blow your mind that the creator of the universe knows you? Does that still blow your mind? Does it still blow your mind that the one that spoke the stars into existence, right? That created the earth that we stand on and that rotates on a perfect axis and a perfect uh, direction around the sun to where it's never too hot, it's never too cold, sustains the life we have. That God that did all those things wants to have a relationship with him, with you. Does that still blow your mind? Does it make you want to know him more? Are you intrigued with him? Do our lives praise the creator? Do they praise the creator and everything we do? Now, that was for the Christians. Now, you, you Christians get out of the way. If you're watching this and you're not a believer, right? Maybe Captain Atheist is watching, watching this week. If you're watching and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't believe in God, or maybe you're on the fence, maybe you're agnostic, whatever the case may be. And I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. That's where my wife and I were 17 years ago, right? We're in the same boat. If you're watching this and you don't know what you believe, are you digging? Are you looking for the answers? I talk to so many people and I have so many friends that are not believers. I have tons of friends that are atheists or agnostics or believe in a very skewed version of, of Jesus Christ. But whenever people say, well, I have these problems or I have these questions, well, have you read this book? Have you really gotten into it? Have you asked the hard questions? Are you seeking for truth? Are you seeking for answers? Not your own subjective things that you want to find, but are you objectively digging into the questions like, why are we here? What are we doing? What is our purpose? What makes me valuable? Am I valuable at all? If you're watching this right now and you're not a believer and some crazy reason you've made it this far into the lesson, I just want to ask you, are you looking? Are you looking? Jesus says that if you seek, you'll find. I'm not worried about non-believers that don't believe. I'm worried about non-believers that have no desire to find the truth. If you're a non-believer, but you're looking, I'm not stressed out about you because I believe if you sincerely search, you'll find. But my question is this, are you even looking? Are you looking? If you're a non-believer and you're watching right now and, and you have legitimate questions, right? you really want to dig, please email us, info at experiencecc.com. We'll hook you up with someone. We'll hook you up with someone here, one of our pastors, someone here, man or a woman, we'll, 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 whoever you're comfortable with that can answer some questions, walk with you. We'll get you books. We'll help you out. Please get a hold of us. If you're in here and you're watching me right now, you're in here, this virtual, whatever. If you're watching me right now and you are a believer, but you have lost your awe of God, if you have lost the wonder of having a personal relationship with the creator, I think we need to repent for that. I think we need to say we're sorry for that. I think we need to get back to a place to where we are blown away that we get to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're in this, I keep saying in this room, if you're watching this right now and you're a believer, we're gonna take communion 
And I think my focus, and I would like it to be your focus if you've struggled with this, the reason why we take communion is because it reminds us of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Jesus that we're talking about today, that he eventually, at 33 years old, purposefully dies for the sins of humanity because he loves us, raises again, fills us with his Holy Spirit. That's what this reminds us of. And if you're watching this this week, maybe you don't already have communion prepared. I wanna encourage you, even if it's after I teach and you turn it off, get with your kids, get with your husband, get with your wife, get with your friends, whatever you gotta do, right? Get some bread, get some juice, and really think about what we're doing right here. That we get to celebrate and commemorate and praise the God that created everything, that sent his only son to die for us right? That we get to do that right now. Father, Lord, I love you and I thank you, Jesus. God, I at times get complacent. I get lazy. I get apathetic. Forgive me of that, God. And if there's anyone else watching this right now, Lord, who have grown just kind of mundane in this whole Christian walk, forgive us, Lord. God, we take this bread today, Lord, to remember that you're not just a, a, a story on a page, but God, your son came down, flesh and blood, and his body was broken, Lord, so our bodies could be eternally saved with you, Lord, so we could be resurrected, so we could be given new bodies, Lord, that, that, that are perfect, that are gonna be with you forever, Jesus. So we take this bread to remember that. Lord, we take this wine to remember that your blood was shed on that cross, God, and that that blood covers our sins. It forgives us, God. Lord, you are the ultimate sacrifice, Lord. You took care of all the debt of the past, all the debt of the future, Lord, and all the debt that I've accumulated right now, God. Lord, we love you, and we take this wine to remember your blood that was shed for us. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on everyone watching this. Keep us strong, Lord. Keep us mentally strong, physically strong, God. I pray that whenever your timing is is perfect, God, it always is, that we can come back into this place, Lord. But I pray that we learn important lessons during this time. I pray that we find ourselves on our knees again, God, appreciative of all you've done for us, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in your holy name that we pray, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Hope to see you soon in person.